1958, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms. He wrote various books of theology, didn't he? Various works of fiction. And he died in 1963, and so approaching the final years of his life, Reflections on the Psalms uh, was one of his last theological books. And in Reflection on the Psalms, here's what Lewis says about Psalm 19. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the book. And one of the greatest lyrics in the world. This is how I think we should approach Psalm 19. With, with a mindset and a posture to behold such carefully worded sentences and lyrics. Aiming to exalt the glory of God just as God has lifted his glory in creation. David has worded this psalm in such a way that displays the glory of God's power and the beauty of God's word. Those things together. You may notice that shift as I was reading. Finishing verse 6, we've been talking about creation and the sun. And then all of a sudden in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I thought we were talking about skies and night and day. You know, where is this, where's the law of God suddenly coming from? Psalm 19 lifts up what theologians have called natural revelation and special revelation. Lifting up the general and natural revelation of God in the world that His glory and power and divine nature are displayed by the fact that we exist. And that the heavens declare His glory. And day by day, their speech, if you will, should be heard announcing this fact. But then the special revelation of God. Where to His creatures He has made known, to His image bearers He's revealed Himself in His Word. And we can say in Psalm 19, the glory of God has been made known in the heavens and in the word of God that we might be students of the world and of his word to know him. Psalm 19 is beautiful in this way. These are the reasons it moved Lewis so much for him to say, I take this to be the greatest poem in the book. Now, you might quibble with that and say, well, I have other favorites besides 19. Okay, fair enough. At least let Lewis have his moment, though. He loves this psalm, and he wants you to attend to its artistry, and that you might be moved deeply about all that God has revealed of himself. In verses 1 and 2, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. We see human characteristics attributed to inanimate, and by this I mean non-speaking things. Heavens declaring, sky proclaiming, day and day and night and night there's speech. What do we mean by this? Well, this, this human action of proclaiming is something that we do when we're trying to draw attention. We say, look at this, or we're proclaiming this, heralding this. Some kind of public attention where people need to stop what they're doing and listen to this. And it's as if, for those with ears to hear and eyes to see in the world around them, we are told in Genesis 1 what we notice in the world. That the world has been ordered by God. Designed by a designer. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19 has Genesis 1 in the background then, doesn't it? The heavens, what Genesis 1 says God made, they are declaring the glory of God. 
The skies, parallel there to the heavens, are displaying or proclaiming something. His handiwork. You know, handiwork, that's something that's carefully done. You see someone in a wood shop crafting something, you're looking at their handiwork. You see someone with a, 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 you know, a pack of yarn that's able to make something glorious, a tapestry of beauty, and you behold their handiwork. So handiwork communicates design with that word, right? So the heavens and the skies are shouting to us that this world is not some kind of self-contained, self-derived thing, but a God-made thing. And it's as if the skies have voices shouting this. God has established order and orbits. He governs seasons and he oversees every one of the billions of stars in all of the galaxies. Galaxies we know not of. His divine handiwork is visible with telescopes and microscopes. You can behold the wonder of God's handiwork. And what Psalm 19 says is, you just need to tune your ear to the skies and you need to look up at the grandeur of what that is. And as you are moved by and overwhelmed by the beauty and grandeur of what is above you, how much greater must be their maker. Oh, so hear the heavens. They declare the glory of God. In the ancient Near East, there were worshipers of the sun and the moon and the stars. But Psalm 19 doesn't say that they should be worshipped. In fact, if they were to say anything to us, it would be about the glory of Yahweh, not any of their own glory. To behold the grandeur of the sun and the beauty of the stars and to worship those things is to not listen to them very well. They are proclaiming the glory of God. That we would be worshipers of the creator and the living maker of all things. He is worthy of praise and glory. So the skies above are proclaiming that day and day, night and night. They are pouring out speech. It's like a, a gushing fountain. The skies are not something that's like barely brimming over, but pouring out and gushing with cosmic truth for us to see this world is not about us. This is for the glory of God. Think about the crashing waves and the greatness of God when you see the mountains, the softness of sand, the lusciousness of forests, all of which reveal the creativity and transcendent wisdom and handiwork of God. Psalm 19 is saying particularly here to us, look up, look up and listen day to day, night and night. Things are being shouted to you. You should marvel at the warmth and the fierce heat of the sun. You should behold the multitude of shining stars against the night sky. You should tremble in wonder at the fierceness of storms and the power of wind. You should stare at the different phases of the moon throughout the month. And you should see that all of these things exist for the glory of God. He has made all things for His glory. This is the end for which God created the world, Edwards would say. So we behold God's creation and what are we witnessing? We look up and we see moment by moment, 
the unresting display of God's supreme wisdom and power. God's glory and the day-by-day, night-by-night shouting takes no rest. Look how constant it is. Day-to-day, night-to-night. Well, that's all-encompassing then. There's not a minute of any of the hours of the 24 that are in our day that don't fit with either day or night. So that means that moment by moment, and unfailingly so, God's glory is being shouted from the heavens. This is what is such a tragedy when you read Paul's words in Romans 1 about what creation has done. They have exchanged, Paul says, the glory of God for images and created things. They have looked at the creation and worshipped that. They've looked at created things and made images to worship those things. They have not listened rightly to the heavens and the earth in the day-by-day, night-by-night speech. They've become idolaters. I think in Romans 1, something like Psalm 19 is in the background. Romans 1 doesn't cite Psalm 19, 1 and 2, but the concepts are overlapping. And it tells us that God's image bearers have suppressed the knowledge of God. It tells us in Romans chapter 1 what mankind has done. I want to read just a moment from Romans 1 and 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made. But in verse 21... They didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him as God. Their thinking became futile. Their hearts darkened. They claimed to be wise and became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what is not God. So Romans 1 is telling us that in our sin, there is a dullness of hearing that in the face of God's natural revelation of his divine nature and eternal power, there have been those in our sinful state who don't even hear what God has revealed in general revelation. Well, it nevertheless ceases to be the case that the heavens declare the glory of God. Think of someone who would say, there's no such thing as a sun because I have not seen it in the sky. And then you come to realize this person might not see anything, right? Because they are blind. They have vision trouble. And so you look around. You say, I see the sun here. But their eyes have impeded their perception because of an inability. And Romans 1 indicts image bearers for idolatrous instincts in a world that, as John Calvin put it, is really a theater for the glory of God. What is creation? Calvin said, is the theater for God's glory. It is the platform or the stage in which the power and name of God are displayed in all the earth. And in the face of this amazing, majestic reality, it is met day by day, moment by moment, with indifference from people in this world. People who care not for the living God and who will worship anything but God. Who do not pay attention to what the skies and the heavens are proclaiming. How comprehensive is it? Well, in verses 3 through 4, the speech, the words of the heavens, it says there's no speech or words whose voice isn't heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
Verses 3 and 4 are telling you how far the extent of general revelation goes. That means anywhere in the world, there is no part of humanity that has escaped the proclamation of the heavens and the creator. It is not a lack of revelation that is the problem. It is the problem of sin. Charles Spurgeon says, the sun, the moon, and the stars are God's traveling preachers. I love that image. He says they are apostles on their journey, confirming those who regard the Lord and condemning those who worship idols. Spurgeon says, sun, moon, and stars. What has God installed in the theater of his glory? Preachers in the skies and in the heavens for the glory of God. And in our folly, to our detriment, on a path to destruction, we have ignored that reality. And gone for lesser things. An illustration of the heavens voice and what is visible through the end of the earth is given at the end of verse 4 and is occupied through verse 6. The sun. You could consider the end of verse 4 to be an example illustrating the larger truth of the voice of the heavens and the skies. Because what do we behold in the skies? We behold the sun. And so this description moves from the more general skies and heavens to something to illustrate this. It's to represent the whole. And and this tells us that the sun is is in a tent that has been set for it. Now Paul, not Paul, uh, the psalmist here, I was in Romans 1 a while ago, so now Paul's on my mind. Psalmist says here that this sun has a tent set for it. And the psalmist, David, is speaking figuratively. It's not actually a tent or pavilion. And we know that the earth revolves around the sun. This is, from an earthly perspective, what seems to be the case. It looks like when you come out early enough in the morning, if you're up that early, you will see at one end of the heavens the sun rising like it's coming from what kept it concealed all of those sleeping hours. It's like it was in its tent. And now it rises out of its tent. And it comes out in verse 5 like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. You think about the celebration of the day of the wedding and wedding night. You think about the joy and, and rejoicing of bridegroom and bride and family alongside because of this occasion. You imagine here the joy and celebration. It's like the sun is coming out and stretching its arms for a new day. Comes out like a bridegroom from the chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. I think of an Olympic runner. It tells us here a strong man. This is not someone who occasionally takes a brisk walk somewhere. But we're talking about someone who's training hard. We're talking about someone, if you see them get ready, they go up to their mark. And they're like hitting their shoulders and they're stretching out. And and they're leaning down and they're ready for the go. And then they are running hard. Here you think of the sun. The sun comes out of his tent There's a celebratory uh, arrival, if you will, with the rising of the sun. And the sun is like a strong man. He's got a course for the day. All of those hours from one end of the skies to the other. And he runs his course with joy. Now in the ancient Near East, people would worship the sun. Most common Egyptian deity to be worshipped was the sun god. It's significant that in the plagues... The Lord caused the light from the sun upon Egypt to go dark in the ninth plague. 
Because though the Egyptians worship the sun, the sun is no God, but answers to God. And the Lord caused the light of the sun to be dark in the middle of the day over the Egyptian region. Here, the sun is not a thing to be worshipped. But like all the stars and the moons, the galaxies and the universe, the sun emerges to do what it has been designed by God to do. And to do it with joy and to reveal the glory of God. It tells us in verse 6, it's rising is from the end of the heavens and it's circuit to the end of them. So this means when you're looking at the path of the sun, it looks like indeed it goes from one end to the other of the heavens. That's the perspective in verse 6. There is nothing hidden from its heat. It's true that the sun is always shining on some part of the world. So verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 19 are meditating on God's skies, let's call it. The skies, the heavens. With the illustration of the sun brought up in verses 4 through 6. But... Verses 7 to 10, while seeming like a change in subject, are connected quite closely in concept. Because something else is sent forth. Something else has voice that needs to be heard. Something else warms and searches and reveals God. His word. His word. In fact, the Apostle Paul... In Romans, not chapter 1 this time, but in Romans chapter 10, he actually quotes from the verse we just looked at. From Psalm 19.6, we're told that uh, there is, or verses uh, 4 through 6, that there is in verse 4, voice going throughout all the earth and words to the end of the world. Voice that goes out. In Romans 10.18, Paul applies that to the word of God in the gospel. Because in the power of the sun that goes out through all the earth and the announcement of the heavens, the gospel proclaimers throughout the earth are like that, bringing light to the world. Not the sun, S-U-N though, but S-O-N, the Son of God. C.S. Lewis in his book Reflection on the Psalms, he says there is a close connection between verses 1 to 6 and then what we see next in verses 7 through 10, a meditation on God's Word. Lewis says... The writer thinks of the sky, the sun, and then he begins to think of something else that is also piercing and all detecting like sunshine. The word of God. In fact, in verses 7 to 10, as we look at the statements about God's word, it will remind us with some of the descriptions of of what we could say of the sun. Look in verse 7 through 10. There are six statements in verses 7 through 9, and then a closing one on the subunit in verse 10. But in verses 7 through 9, six statements. First, the law of the Lord is perfect. Statement number one. The word law is the word Torah or instruction. It doesn't just mean the legal code that you find throughout the scriptures about guiding and instructing on certain regulations and rituals. This is God's revealed will in His Word. This is what God has made known. God's instructions for His image bearers. It tells us here His law, His instruction is perfect. There is nothing deficient. Okay, so let's make some statements to unpack this. There's nothing deficient in the Word of God. But rather, God has seen fit and been pleased to reveal accurately 
all that he has willed to make known to his creatures. So we could say that there is a sufficiency in God's word and not a deficiency in it. There isn't one part of scripture that contradicts another part of scripture. That would mean the law of God would be imperfect. But rather everything in the Bible is coherent. And from Genesis to Revelation, the living God by his spirit has preserved his instructions blamelessly. What is the effect of the instructions of God's word or the law of God, which is perfect? It revives the soul. This is something we need. This is something we often need. We can recognize how revived our souls will need, need to be in the midst of the discouragements and hardships of the world. We need the truth of God's word. Haven't you woken up on some morning or later in the evening, come to a place where you were overwhelmed with what you had to do or went through? And yet something comes to mind, or maybe you sit and open the word of God, and truth begins to saturate your mind and pour into your soul, and you realize you are being renewed inwardly by the word of God, word reviving the soul. It's an effect of the law of God. Like the sun that shines upon the world to bring life to plants and to give the heat and warmth that it needs for God's creatures. The law of God, greater than the sun, revives the soul. We're talking about our inner life. We're talking about internally, that as we as people of God have an inner life where we ruminate and meditate, where we hope and where we despair, where we trust and where we waffle, all of the various inner things that happen within us, what does our soul need? Our soul needs that which is true and that which is perfectly true. Therefore, we have the word of God. Do you believe that this is true of the word? That as David describes the scripture this way, would you describe the scripture this way? And would your life bear out the truth that you believe this? He says here in verse 7, Secondly, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word testimony, this is something where a person bears witness about a matter. If you had to bear witness about something, let's say you had to write it out, you would have your written testimony. The word of God is God's revelation of himself. He's bearing witness. And as he bears witness in his word, whatever he speaks about can be trusted. The testimony of the Lord is sure, which means God is not going to lie to us in his word. Rather, as God makes known the truth about the world, about our need, about the remedy for sin, about the hope that is to come, his testimony is sure. The sun is trustworthy. Day to day and night to night, the sun rises and sets. It comes from its sky pavilion to light up the world. And it runs like a marathon runner in its course with joy. The testimony of the Lord is faithful trustworthy, dependable. What is the effect if we believe the word of God, what God is born witness to is trustworthy? It makes wise the simple. Now in the word of God, the word simple means those who are vulnerable. It means those who would be prone to folly and who need to be guided and formed and matured into Christ-likeness and in the proper fear of the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And in verse 7 here, it tells us that the testimony of the Lord is making wise the simple. Why do we need the word of God? Because we need to be wise. We need to be wise in a world that is unwise. We can trust the words of God. As one writer put it, the doctrines of Scripture show us what to believe and what we are to do. It gives us warnings about what we must shun, promises that what we must hope for, and that these are revealing to us our salvation that God has brought about by Christ. Thirdly, in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Let's think about what the opposite would mean. The precepts of the Lord are wrong. Well, we wouldn't want to say that. And the word of God's testimony about itself is nothing like that. Instead, it tells us that the precepts of the Lord are right. And a precept is like an order or a moral principle. The way something ought to be done, like a direction. If somebody gave you guidance because you weren't familiar with the territory, they might say, follow these precepts. And they give you some instructions to guide. A precept is the kind of thing that guides. It's the thing to be taken in and internalized. The precepts of the Lord are right. He doesn't misguide. He doesn't lead you astray. And we need the word of God because we are in a world in which we could be prone to wander, hearing all sorts of messages that might lead our hearts astray. The word of God does not do that. The word of God, his precepts are right. So we never have to go to the commands of the Lord and think, I wonder which percentage of these I can trust. I wonder, you know, proportionally, these particular instructions or precepts, how many of them are actually true? It says here about the words of God, his precepts are right. Rejoicing the heart. Now, rejoicing the heart again, just like in verse 7, reviving the soul and making wise the simple. These effects from the word of God are only effects experienced by those submitting to and delighting in the word. In verse 8 then, the precepts of the Lord rejoicing the heart, when we come to a place, and Lord willing, it would be as soon as possible for all of our lives, when we come to a place where we realize, I can fully trust the Lord. I should delight in all his word. He will never lead me astray. And therefore his precepts are always right. There is a comfort and joy that results in the heart of the believer when we can say God's way is always right. His ways are always good. His precepts are always wise. He is unfailingly faithful. When we can see in the word of God what the precepts of God can be described as, that does something to the heart. And it fills us with joy. Because we realize we don't know better than the Bible. We're not trying to be wiser than Scripture. We're trying to see and understand and study what God has said about himself. His testimony is sure and his precepts are right. Fourthly, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Commandment singular. It doesn't mean a particular commandment must be in view. I think commandment is standing in for commandments all over the Scripture. So the commandment of the Lord, what God decrees, it is pure. The word pure is something to do with radiant or bright. It's pure. If you can imagine uh, like a a, a cloudy, dusty uh, lens through which light is shining. You'd say, oh, we could have a purer, cleaner light if we cleaned up that lens. This radiance 
is light for the eyes. This purity for vision is being described is describing the commandment of the God that his commands are pure or radiant. Again, we think of the sun. We think of the heat of the sun, the radiance of the sun. And from morning to night, the purity of its light doing all the good work that it does as creation receives its light. Here in verse 8, what are God's commands like? They are pure. And what is the effect? Light. Look at the effect at the end of verse 8. Enlightening the eyes. So that's a spiritual statement, isn't it? It doesn't just mean physically. The sun does that. But spiritually speaking, the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our understanding, we need help from the word of God to see, to understand that we can perceive the story of the world and the greatness of God and what he's revealed of himself in Christ, the redemptive epic of his word. And in the end, how we must respond to news of the gospel, the mission of his church. And the hope of what is to come. The word of God enlightens our understanding. You don't say, well, you know, I wonder what uh, the uh, age to come will be like. Let me look at the stars, the moon, and the sun and see what I can conclude. You're not going to get those sorts of details from general revelation. So as great as general revelation is to rejoice in and to study, oh, may we be students of his word. May we study the doctrines and teachings of Scripture so that our lives are brought into conformity to the teaching of the Word of God because His precepts are always right and His commandments are always pure, radiant for our eyes. In verse 9, fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean. Fifth here, the fear of the Lord is clean. And then sixthly, the rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. The fear of the Lord... This makes us think of what our proper response is to God's word. It seems to not only have in view the word of God, but our proper response to coming to know God through his word. And the fear of the Lord is clean. The word clean in the Old Testament is constantly a ritual word about approaching the Lord and being acceptable and received by him. In other words, in the books of Leviticus and Numbers, for instance, you could be rendered unclean and you were not to approach the Lord. Here, the fear of the Lord is the internal posture of the believer. What does the Lord receive? What does he count as clean and acceptable? Those who come before the Lord to know God as he is. To tremble before him with a genuine reverence and joy. Not because we are to be scared all of our days. But because he is the most high God. He's sovereign in heaven and earth. And with his steadfast covenant love, he welcomes us That in our hearts we would be worshipers of him. And that is clean. In fact, as we come to know God. And in the new covenant with Christ. We can say this most truly. This state endures forever. What is the life of God's people like? The life of God's people is not a temporal state with them. You're not justified for a few years or a few decades. You don't have life temporal but life eternal. The result in verse 9 is enduring forever. He then says, sixthly, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word rules is another idea of ordinance or decree. It's similar to precept and commandment in verse 8. What we realize is the psalmist is doing what sometimes poets and artists do. 
They can not only say something once and move on, they might use various words, various images, stylistically to make the point. So we've read about the testimony of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the precepts, the commandments, the rules of God. All of these have overlapping ideas, right? All trying to point out the word of God at the core. It's like what the psalmist has done is he's lifted up a many-sided gem. And the light is casting on the gem. And he says, I'm just going to turn this in front of you so that you can see this side and this side and this side. You're still looking at the same gem. It's still the word of God. But he's trying to give you all these ways to see it and how good and desirable it is. And if we see the word of God as it truly is, in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You see, the proper understanding of the word of God, if we are to meditate on the scriptures and what his special revelation from Genesis to Revelation means, this is better than anything you could ever discover on a map that was marked with an X because there's the treasure chest. This is better than the fine gold, even loads of it, that in the ancient world would have just been life-changing for people to find, generationally impacted, if they, could just, if they could just stabilize their livelihood, their income, and their future. He says, no, 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 if, if you would find any of those things desirable, more to be desired is the Word of God. Sweeter than honey. He moves here from the picture of treasure to something that was part of the, the, uh, a lovely and delightful experience. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you think, well, I don't love honey. Okay, that's okay. Substitute whatever the, the appropriate word would be. I love honey. So for those of you that can just say exactly like the psalmist does, or you have to substitute it, sweeter than any of those things is the taste of the word of God. Now, honey or any of the proper substitutes... Um, it's only going to be seen as sweet if it's tasted. This is describing here what someone does with a word. This is not someone who's looking at the word with their hand to their chin, and they're just sort of analyzing and studying it, standing aloof from it, like they're merely looking at something impressive in a museum. They're walking by and they're thinking, oh, isn't this interesting? Isn't that beautiful? Moving right along. No, this is someone who says, here will be my life in this word. I'm going to be planted here, rooted here. There will be an internalizing, a tasting of the word, and the result there is a sweetness greater than anything we know. We thought about general revelation. We thought about special revelation in verses 7 through 10. The last part of the passage, verses 11 to 14, the psalmist is going to speak personally about himself. And when he does, there is a sense in which we want to resonate with his question and with his proclamations. This is a kind of closing prayer, let's say. In verses 11 to 14, he's talking to the Lord. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. Then he's talking to him about himself in the third person, to the Lord. He's the servant himself of the Lord. We saw that in the superscription of chapter 18. David refers to himself as a servant of Yahweh. Here in chapter 19, he's God's servant. And by the words of God, the servant is rightly warned. Oh, how we need directive in the word... To know the path to follow and the path to avoid. 
You see, the psalmist here says, by them your servant is warned. That's a humble recognition as God's image bearers to realize there are things of which we must be warned by the word of God. We don't know everything we need to know. We don't see everywhere that we need to see. We can't predict everything we can or manage outcomes the way we wish. Instead, we must be warned rightly by the word of God. That we might keep the word of God. Oh, and there is blessing in keeping the word. In verse 11, he says, in keeping them, there is great reward. The blessing of God upon his people who love his word and seek to flourish in the liveliness of communion with God by his word. We need the word of God because like he says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? This is a question that should be answered this way. Who can discern his errors? No one completely. So this answer is rhetorical for him to say, here's why I need the word. Because who can see all of his own blind spots? Who can notice all the ways in which we fall short? What we need is the mirror of God's word. Doesn't it make you think of James's letter? We're in James 1. The wise person is like the one who looks into the word of God as a mirror. The fool forgets what he looks like. Goes right on his business. But, but the wise person, the one who knows God, is looking into the mirror of God's word. And it searches his heart. By the Holy Spirit, our hearts are searched by the word of God. So he says here, who can discern his errors? And this is a question to set up our need for the word. Because I can't see everything I need, but the word of God by his spirit sees all. So declare me, he says, innocent from hidden faults. Meaning that his hidden faults, he wants the word of God to go as deep as his heart's recesses. All the things hidden from others. Oh God, search those things. What nobody else ever knows and what nobody else is aware of. Oh God, would your word do such a work there that I might be blameless before you. I don't think this is to say that he's going to be without sin. In the context of the Psalms, this means to walk blamelessly. It means to walk in truth and in integrity before God and not pursuing wickedness. In verse 13, I think it's confirmed in this verse what he means in verse 12. Verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. I mean, can't we just say the same words in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I mean, that's what David is saying. So if somebody were to ask Jesus like his disciples did, you know, how are we to pray? Jesus says, here's the kind of things for, for your mind to think about. We could even use the words of this psalm. What are the sorts of things I need to pray? That, oh God, you would restrain my foolish heart and my sinful instincts from ruin. That presumptuous sins. This doesn't mean sins in general. This means shameless rebellion. Presumptuous sin is sin without care. This is someone who is looking to live in rebellion against God. They don't want to follow God. And he says, oh Lord, would you spare me from being those rebelling against you? Keep me back from that. Let those sins not have dominion over me. A life of holiness is a life seeking to subdue the acts of the flesh. A life of pursuing God is a life seeking to exercise dominion. Over those fleshly deeds that would seek to characterize our lives. And instead to walk by the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And mortify the deeds of the flesh, he says in Romans 8. Well, let's say it the way David says it. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
In other words, what the people of God want in the New Testament is what the people of God want in the Old Testament because God is the same and what He's called us to is to live before Him. What's the result of verse 13? Then I shall be without blame. And what He means is, I will not be counted blameworthy of rebellion against you. I will be without blame in that regard. Innocent of great transgression. He's not saying here he'll be sinless, but he wants to be one who follows God. And I just wonder, at your core, what do you want? Like, what do you really want for your life? Like, when it comes down to it, what are you going to live for? You will live for something. Something will be your refuge. And in Psalm 19, the heavens declare his glory, and the scriptures reveal his perfect, sure, trustworthy word. And my plea with you this morning is that you would follow Christ with your whole heart. So that you could say like David does in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Earlier we looked at the word clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. And I referenced it in the Old Testament. That was about being acceptable to approach the Lord. In verse 14, may my words and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. That's once again sacrificial imagery. It's coming, if you will, to the house of the Lord. Longing to be the true worshiper of the living God for all. You're not trying to put on. You're not trying to be one person here and live in rebellion against God. You want to be acceptable in the sight of God because of who God is and he is your refuge. So the words of my mouth, David says, let them and the meditation of my heart, let that be pleasing, be acceptable. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, one responsibility of the priests was to declare a sacrifice unacceptable. Like if it didn't meet the right criteria according to the law, it was not a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. But the mere ritual presentation of a sacrifice was never the point. Let's say someone brought a spotless lamb. But they're like Cain in Genesis 4. They don't really love the Lord. So they're going through sacrificial motions. You know, Cain and Abel both present things to the Lord. Cain's heart... His heart before God is the issue. Abel's heart is different. He knows God, loves God, wants to worship God. Is Abel still a sinner? Absolutely. But he wants to be received by God by hoping in and trusting in God. And friend, that's our our only standing. Is that God himself and his redeeming grace and mercy would be that in which we hope. Because we don't come with worthiness in our words and actions to present, to say, is it going to be because of what I can give that makes me acceptable? No, it's because of what we receive from God. We are acceptable in the sight of God because we are clothed as those having refuge in Him. How do we know, though, that the psalmist really believes that? Well, I'm just going to point you to the end of the verse. How does he understand God to function in his life? My rock and my redeemer. There you go. This psalmist is not trying to look in his own heart and say, well, the only way I'm going to come to the Lord is if I can be my own rock and if I can be my own redeemer. That is not how he thinks of it. If he's going to come before the Lord to be received by God, it will be because of what he believes God to be for him. And who is God for him? My rock. And my Redeemer. The word rock has been used in a number of psalms, hasn't it? It's about refuge and standing. It's about a place removed from the most insidious enemies of hell and principalities of this world. 
It's a place of security and spiritual stability and redeemer. Now, this term is a lovely term, and it's rooted in Exodus. God's a redeemer out of Egypt. The Israelites are taken out of captivity. Well, that captivity was removed for those Israelites many years before David. But who remains, or what remains true of God for David? God is still a redeemer. Not because David's been delivered from Israel, but because David's been delivered from his sin. He is looking to God. And in this prayer says, O Lord, receive me. My whole heart, receive me. Because of who you are, my rock and my redeemer. Yes, indeed. The heavens declare the glory of God. But the word of God declares the glory of Christ. That in the cross, his substitutionary work on our behalf, that we might say of the living Christ who reigns in heaven and the earth, greater than the sun and the sky is the name above every name, that Christ Jesus and his glory, he is our rock and our redeemer. In him we trust. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessing on our hearts, O God. We pray that your word would be sealed within us to bear fruit and that our trust in you would be true, that our faith in you would grow, that our hope in you would be based in what you've made known in your word, that we would receive the greatness of your revelation as students of the heavens and as studiers of this holy scripture and that Psalm 19 might be used by you. Would you be pleased, O God, in bringing glory to your name to revive our souls? To feed and nourish us, Lord, as your people, as your saints. And that you would do so for the reason, for that which all things exist, for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.